0: Welcome to Rule of Law Talk. I'm Matt Harmon of the World Justice Project, and I'm here to introduce today's topic, International Law in an Age of Rising Authoritarianism. In an article recently published in the American Journal of International Law, Professor Tom Ginsburg of the University of Chicago finds the recent period of liberal international law giving way to a new era, an era in which authoritarian states promote a conception of international law designed to reinforce their rule and extend their influence. In a recent online event produced in partnership with the American Society of International Law and recorded on May twentieth, two 2020, Professor Ginsburg and a panel of experts discussed these findings and their implications for the future, including management of the global COVID-19 pandemic. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to subscribe to WJP's Rule of Law Talk for more episodes like this one.
1: Good afternoon. I'm Mark Agrast, Executive Director of the American Society of International Law. I also serve as Vice President of the World Justice Project, which has joined with the society in organizing this event. I'm pleased to welcome you to this discussion on behalf of both organizations. World Justice Project is an independent, multidisciplinary organization working to create knowledge, build awareness, and stimulate action, to advance the rule of law worldwide, its annual Rule of Law Index is the world's leading source for original independent data on the rule of law. The American Society of International Law is a nonprofit, nonpartisan educational membership organization founded in 1906 and chartered by the US Congress in 1950. With members in over 100 countries, the Society's mission is to foster knowledge of international law and to promote the establishment and maintenance of international relations on the basis of law and justice. Authoritarianism is on the rise in many parts of the world. For the third year in a row, the World Justice Project Rule of Law Index found that more countries declined than improved in overall rule of law performance, particularly with respect to constraints on government authority. Dozens of recent books chronicle rising authoritarianism and question whether democracies can survive. In the context of the COVID-19 pandemic, fears have been raised that authoritarian leaders are exploiting the situation to further erode democratic norms and assuming emergency powers that they intend to make permanent. In the latest issue of our quarterly, the American Journal of International Law, Professor Tom Ginsburg considers what rising authoritarianism means for international law. He posits that as the number of authoritarian regimes increases, the post-Cold War model of liberal international law may give way to a new era in which illiberal authoritarian states promote a conception of international law designed to reinforce their rule and extend their influence. He also argues that as authoritarian regimes gain increased influence over international institutions, this may have feedback effects that accelerate authoritarian trends at the national level. We have three distinguished speakers with us today to discuss the article and these issues. I'll introduce all three of them now so we can proceed with an uninterrupted discussion. We'll begin with a question for Tom and ask him to touch on a few of the principal themes of the article. Then I'll invite Andrea and Jacques to offer brief responses before we have a general discussion. We'll try to leave time for at least a few questions at the end. If you'd like to ask a question, please type it into the Q&A window at the bottom of your screen and include your name and institutional affiliation. As we have only one hour for this session, I've asked all of the speakers to try to limit their opening remarks to maximize the time they'll have for interchange. Our speakers are Professor Tom Ginsberg, the author of the article I mentioned, uh, Professor Jacques Delisle, Andrea Kendall-Taylor, and I'm going to just uh, give you a quick bio for each of them Tom is Leo Spitz Professor of International Law, Ludwig and Hilda Wolf Research Scholar and Professor uh, Professor of Political Science at the University of Chicago. His work focuses on comparative and international law from an interdisciplinary perspective. He holds BA, JD and PhD degrees from the University of California at Berkeley. His latest book is How to Save a Constitutional Democracy, written with Aziz Z. Huck. He is co-director of the Comparative Constitutions Project, an effort funded by the National Science Foundation to gather and analyze the constitutions of all independent nation states since 1789. Before entering law teaching, Tom served as a legal advisor at the Iran U.S. Claims Tribunal in The Hague. He is a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Andrea Kendall Taylor, is a Senior Fellow and Director of the Transatlantic Security Program at the Center for a New American Security. Prior to joining CNAS, Andrea served for eight years as a Senior Intelligence Officer. She was Deputy National Intelligence Officer for Russia and Eurasia at the National Intelligence Council in the Office of the Director of National Intelligence and a Senior Analyst at the Central Intelligence Agency. She is also an adjunct professor at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service and co author of a new book published by Oxford University Press Democracies and Authoritarian Regimes. Our third speaker is Jacques Delisle, the Stephen A. Cozen Professor of Law and Professor of Political Science. He is also director of the Center for East Asian Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. His research and teaching focus on contemporary Chinese law and politics, including legal reform and its relationship to economic reform and political change in China, the international status of Taiwan and cross-strait relations, China's engagement with the international order, legal and political issues in Hong Kong under Chinese rule, and US-China relations. Jacques also is professor of political science Director of the Center for East Asian Studies at Penn, Deputy Director of the Center for the Study of Contemporary China, and Director of the Asia Program at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. So as you can hear, we have the right people to have this discussion. I'm grateful to them all for joining us. And let me now turn to our panel. Tom, uh, let's start with a question. What is authoritarian international law? and how does it differ from international law as we have known it?
2: Great, well, thank you so much, Mark. And let me, before I answer, just say what a pleasure it is to be here. The WJP and American Society are two organizations I've been involved with for a while and I care a lot about, so I'm really happy to be here. Um, Authoritarian international law is a reflection of the moment we're in in the world, which is we're now at a place where more countries are authoritarian than our democracies, more people live in those countries than live in democracies and uh, a greater share of global GDP is produced by authoritarians than is produced by democracies. It's really a profound shift. And my claim is that that is going to have some implications for international law. So, uh, whereas we usually, or used to think of authoritarians as using international law in a kind of Westphalian mode, pushing for non-interference and emphasizing sovereignty, mutual respect and such, that's not really feasible in the world we're in today. Countries uh, are engaged with each other and just have to be by virtue of the uh, frequency and intensity of cross-border cooperation. And so what we're observing is authoritarian countries uh, now engaging with international law in a new way. And so I define it as um, international legal behavior and institutions that are designed to maintain and extend authoritarian rule across time and space. And it sort of reflects the fact that authoritarians tend to be very, very focused on the survival of their particular regime. It's a really diverse category. You know, the Saudi monarchy has little in common ideologically with the Chinese Communist Party or with uh, Putin's Russia or Maduro's Venezuela. Uh, But um, and and we do know from the literature on war that authoritarians do uh, are not really prone to deep cooperation with each other. They fight and uh, often go to war with each other. But in our moment, they do have a common interest in fighting back um, what is perceived as, as overreach uh, of liberal democracies and a common threat that they face in liberal democracy. And I think the key moment um, in the current trend towards authoritarianism was really sort of in the early part of this century with the color revolutions in countries like Kyrgyzstan and Ukraine, Georgia, quite close to Putin's Russia, Um, I think that that scared Putin quite a bit. Um, And whether or not there was Western influence on it, the people demanding democracy pose a major threat to an authoritarian regime. Obviously, the Arab Spring was another wave of threat, uh, mostly fought off successfully by the authoritarian leaders. And um, so now I think what we're seeing is a sophistication into the use of international law. Now, um, in terms of, you know there 's a common theme that we we in comparative politics observe when it comes to authoritarian institutions. The average authoritarian country today is you know doesn 't look like Cuba or communist china it it looks in form perhaps like a democracy It will have elections it will have nominally independent courts it will have a constitution with lots of rights and such. Uh, but what uh, we are learning and and um, and scholars invested in uh, the study of authoritarianism we're trying to understand is that these institutions get repurposed by authoritarians to help them survive. So whereas an election in a democracy is designed to facilitate, you know, turnover among different political parties, in an authoritarian regime, an election is designed to solicit information about potential issues that might be threatening or maybe to co-opt particularly charismatic people. Um, but it's not designed to actually allow for a turnover in power. And so it's in that spirit that I'm looking at international law, the idea that maybe these institutions that we um, that we focus on and we celebrate might in the hands of authoritarians actually allow them to um, uh, extend their rule and secure themselves. So, um, well, what would that look like? I mean, I think in style, uh, much of it looks like traditional Westphalian. International law. That is, instead of seeing deep cooperation in international organizations, we'll see shallower cooperation. We'll see less emphasis on third-party dispute resolution, less emphasis on human rights, more emphasis on public exceptions, public purpose exceptions to human rights. Um pro- and so that that looks sort of like a return to traditional Westphalian thinking. Um, but then again, what I'm, I'm trying to show is that we are also seeing really creative moves by authoritarians to, um, to develop structures that will help defend against potential, um, potential threats to their survival. So I focus on, on three or four. And a lot of the work is, a lot of the papers is about um, regional organization, which I see as kind of a testing ground, a sort of laboratory for ideas that might then extend to the international sphere as a whole. So uh, one example is the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which I think most Western observers have thought of as basically a talk shop. Uh, It's grounded in Russia and China and neighboring countries. It's been gradually extending its membership. But um, among their innovations is they've created, named new international wrongs. So building on the law of terrorism, the international law of terrorism, which is you know, defined as a in rather vaguely in a bunch of individual treaties, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization has named two other evils, as they call it. So there's three evils, terrorism, separatism, and extremism. And the last two are unfamiliar to most international lawyers, but they're being developed in this context. Uh, and they are being deployed against people like demonstrators in Hong Kong, who have been labeled extremists. Um, what the uh, legal content of the treaties is, not only to name and define these things, but to copy what we observe in the anti-terrorist framework, which is a, uh, a regime of prosecutor extradite. So if you find someone who commits a terrorist act, all states are required to prosecute that person or extradite to a state which is willing to prosecute. Um, they also, of course, in the terrorist context, we observe uh, restrictions on finance and transport or financing, and so they've taken that structure and copied it for these two rather vaguely named norms, and um, I think that has the potential to really change the law, the global law of self-determination, uh, because now if there is any, you know, if someone is, um, uh, you know, mentions peacefully the idea of let's say uh, self-determination in Xinjiang or Tibet, well, that person will be labeled a separatist, and any cooperation any transporter person uh, that cooperates with them, um, if they are found in a neighboring country, they will have to be extradited to to be punished in China. So that's really um, one significant development, I think. We're also seeing in cyber law, a joint initiative of many authoritarian regimes to create a new UN treaty. The drafting is gonna begin this August and human rights organizations have been very concerned that the cyber crimes defined in this treaty are going to be very extensive, very extensive, and will reach to any crime that is committed using the internet. So instead of specifically, you know, internet-based crime and such, it will be, uh, you know, speaking ill of the leader in one country will now potentially become a, a transnational crime. Uh, so that's something to watch and to pay attention to. We've also seen very aggressive. Um, War, uh moves by China in particular, but also Russia to play a much more active role in international fora. Um, and I should just mention that at this moment the fight over the WHO is a perfect example of what's going on. The United States is sort of unilaterally abdicating our cooperation with international institutions and uh, trying to take our marbles and go home. And the problem with that strategy is it leaves a massive vacuum which China is rather eagerly filling uh, with money and with contacts that will give them a lot of leverage down the road with all these international organizations. So I see that as being a real a feature of this as well. Um, well, let me just say, well, what can we do about it? That's a big, uh, and then maybe my last comment sort of leads uh, in that direct to that direction: the disengagement with international law by Western democracies, uh, the abdication of the international organization space, and um, essentially allowing the authoritarians to capture these structures without speaking out actively for democracy, I think has been part of the problem. It is just a fundamental conflict between pro-democratic or liberal international law, which sort of seeks to extend liberal rule uh, as far as possible globally, and pro-authoritarian law, which seeks to fight that and prevent that. And, um, you know, I don't think the answer is simply giving up on democracy and human rights and calling a spade a spade when we observe it in the international sphere. Um, and maybe with that, I will uh, stop and, and see what the, uh, the others have to say.
1: Great, thank you, Tom. That's a great start to the conversation. Uh, I'd love to get some reactions now from Andrea and Jacques. Uh, do authoritarian regimes actually behave this way? And is this your also, also your analysis of uh, what's going on in the international sphere?
3: Andrea, right. sure. yeah, I can jump in first. And um, yeah, again, just to reiterate, thanks for having me um to discuss what is a really timely and important topic. And I just also wanted to give kudos to Tom for his fantastic article because it's really put a finger on the pulse on what is an incredibly important factor that's shaping the contest between democracies and authoritarian regimes. And when you just kind of think about the democracy literature, historically, so much of it has focused on domestic factors. So things like levels of economic development, how that wealth is distributed, civil society, historical experiences with democracy, and so on. But this article really highlights what is sometimes an overlooked factor that affects regime change and democratic development, and that's the international environment. Um, and so it's, it's really, um, it's so important, I think particularly at this moment and in the wake of COVID to look at the intersection between geopolitics and the health and resilience of democracies. And so that's, that, that's why I think this article is so timely. Um, I just wanted to make maybe qu- three quick points to add to the conversation. Um, And the first point, and I think each of these points actually just reinforces or amplifies the threat that authoritarian law poses to liberal democracy. So all of these things, I think, buttress everything that Tom was just talking about. Um, But the first point I wanted to just zoom in and pause and and spend a little time discussing is the why we're seeing this. So why is it that the autocrats' efforts to co-opt and use international law have become so urgent? And I think as Tom highlights in his article, that autocrats really have always sought to use international law to their advantage. But what we see now in the last several years is really a significant increase in the scope and intensity of those efforts. And I think the reason why that intensity and the urgency has peaked for autocrats is because there's been some really important changes in authoritarian regimes since the end of the Cold War. I've done a lot of work looking at the evolution of autocracy, how autocracies today are different than during the Cold War. And one of the factors I've written a lot about is that we've seen significant changes in the way that authoritarian leaders are being ousted from office. So historically, it's been a story about coups. And when you look back in the 70s and 80s in particular, that comp, uh, coups were you know, three quarters or so of... Um, the ousters of authoritarian incumbents. But when you kind of fast forward to more recent decades, you see that actually a far greater proportion of contemporary authoritarian autocrats Are uh, authoritarian autocrats, of most leaders are being ousted because of protests. And so these are things like the Arab Spring, the color revolutions that Tom referenced, but it's also in Burkina Faso. A lot of authoritarian incumbents, and even if they're not being directly ousted by protests, it's protests that are triggering elections then that remove incumbents, or trigger some of the civil wars like Gaddafi or others where um, that eventually leads to their ouster. And that is a really significant change in authoritarian politics because all of a sudden it's not just threats from the elite within these regimes, it's the people that now matter in a, in a significantly different way. And so again, the key takeaway is now that the threats to 21st century autocrats have, shift, have shifted and that p- protests and this mass mobilization now is the most destabilizing threat that these leaders face. And so why does that matter? It matters because now they, they have a new urgency to try and use international law to mitigate threats from the people. And so Tom talked about protests, the color revolutions, Arab Spring Um, We talked about the role of technology. He was talking about these cyber laws that they need to basically go after and try to rewrite the rules of the game governing the Internet um, and other tools that are giving rise to these protests to try to rewrite the rules of, of the game in their favor. So authoritarian law in terms of countering color revolutions, trying to control technologies that they see as a threat that has taken on a new urgency because all of the sudden they're being ousted in these bottom up ways. The second point I wanna make is, um, it's not just changes in international law that are taking place in the international system. There's actually a whole number of factors that are working to the advantage of authoritarian regimes. And so this article sits in a broader context of shifting international dynamics that are creating headwinds for democracy globally. And so just to give a couple of examples, there's really good political science research that talks about the structure of the international system and how that shapes how many democracies or autocracies are in place at any given time. And so we know, for example, that when the world is governed by a single democratic hegemon, as the United States played that role in the immediate aftermath of the Cold War, the number of democracies in the world rises. But when you have a multipolar world order, and when one of those hegemons is authoritarianism, that's when the number of democracies bottoms out. And so we do see this trend that politics follows geopolitics and China's rise, as Tom highlighted, is really creating dynamics that work against democracy. Um, another good example is, you know, there's a whole literature on diffusion. There's things that spread across governments, ideas, innovations, tactics, And for a very long time, this diffusion was working to the advantage of democracy. So protests were diffusing, that explains the cluster of protests with the color revolutions or the Arab Spring. But now we see that now diffusion proofing tactics are spreading. Um, And so autocracies are doing this passively. There's learning, they can see the, the successes and the mistakes of their peers in a just course but it's also happening in the very active manner that Tom is talking about. Russia and China are going out, they're teaching best practices and they're proactively engaging in international organizations in ways that again, are creating these headwinds for democracy. And then the final thing in the international environment too, there's great research that talks about linkages and leverages between countries. So when democracies trade, um, give aid and all the people to people connections, those things have helped fuel the spread of democracy. But as China and Russia are growing more active, those same linkages are now working in the opposite direction. So I guess my overall point here is Tom has put his finger on the pulse of all of these changes that are happening in the international environment that are now working in the advantage or have the potential to work in the advantage of autocracies. And then the final point that I wanna highlight too is just um, the point that authoritarian regimes are not acting alone, that we're seeing increasingly that the interests and the objectives of a lot of powerful autocracies are more aligned. Um, And that's particularly the case with Russia, China, with the COVID crisis, it was Iran also kind of singing from the same sheet of music in terms of their disinformation efforts. Um, But that is really increasing the potency of their ability to shape international laws. So uh, yes, China poses its own risk, Russia poses its own risks and challenges, but they are increasingly aligned on these issues. And this is particularly the case in the multilateral institutions. And so as they're singing from the same sheet of music, as they're working towards the same ends, it's making it a more potent challenge than any one of them working um, in isolation. And I guess just the final point is then to juxtapose the growing convergence among the autocracies with the lack of cohesion or the unraveling of liberal democracies, particularly Western liberal democracies. We're seeing within Europe, COVID is really amplifying the fissures within Europe. Uh, it's also straining an already strained transatlantic relationship. And so it's really fraying and um, really undermining, eroding the ability of the United States to work with allies and partners. And we know um, that when we work in concert with strong democratic allies and partners, that the United States is a more effective force on the international stage. Um, But right now, that that cohesion is being strained. And so I think it, it creates a lot of significant challenges. So all of this is just to really drive home, I think the points that Tom is making that this is a significant challenge and it's being buttressed um, by a number of different dynamics that are all converging in a way that's created really significant challenges for democracy. And I'll end there.
1: Thanks very much, Andrea. Uh, John, your thoughts please.
4: Okay, um, well thanks very much. I'm going to uh, hit some of the same themes that Andrea did, although from a slightly different uh, angle in some cases. Um, Terrifically interesting paper, as is true of much of Tom's work. Um, I'm going to come at this from uh, the perspective of sort of international relations and law interdisciplinary uh, things, and from the China perspective. The first is very much in sync with Tom, the second is it's the hammer I have so everything looks like a nail. Um, so what I wanted to uh, suggest at the opening here is that, that this piece is deeply embedded in essentially a view about how we should understand the relationship between international law and international relations. Uh, and uh, Tom does a, does a, a pretty good demolition job on what had been sort of constructivism on steroids, right? The belief uh, that if uh, China and other authoritarian regimes were brought into the international largely liberal legal order, they would uh, be transformed. It's kind of like the old Confucian view, you bring in the barbarians, you get them into Chinese culture and they'll be good people. Uh, well, in its maximal version, that was uh, sort of the agenda of the most overblown notions of engaging China and other such regimes. So if you uh, sort of go through the, uh, the slide deck on the US approach to this, getting China into the WTO was on some views going to make it a more liberal, perhaps even incipiently democratic regime. That was the 1990s to 2000 story then you got the Obama era TPP story, which is with a contest about who was going to write the rules for the international economic order. And now we're into the Trump era where evil empire all over again. They're kind of hopeless. Um, you know, sort of a, a crumbling of that sort of agenda. Now it was always overwritten. Uh, a more sober constructivism really was about international behavior, not domestic transformation. And there the Chinese record is a bit more mixed. Uh, Tom's right to point out Uh, Many of the contrasts, um, they do exist, they're good parts, they're bad parts. Uh, It doesn't neatly divide into economic versus political and security. So it's a somewhat messier story, uh, but certainly hasn't been a happy one for constructivists and it's been headed somewhat downhill. Uh, Tom also takes on the sort of liberal internationalist, transnationalist uh, story um, uh, and and, uh, has some choice words to say about those who had a much rosier projection for that. Uh, not too, too many years ago, Uh, and it's a pretty compelling case. At least for the moment, that view is in retreat, Uh, and China under Xi Jinping has provided some really nice evidence for that. Uh, The people who were thought to be the allies of liberal progressive change in China are either in jail or at least not getting the kind of policy influence they used to, Uh, and many of their counterparts in the U.S. don't seem to have a whole lot of power either, so that kind of network uh, is not the force uh, for uh, liberalization and transformation either internationally or uh, domestically within China. And as we head toward decoupling and rivalry and the trade war and all that, those kinds of connections seem likely to be all the weaker, although we don't know quite how far that's going yet. So Tom's thesis is mostly a domestic systems type thesis that is how states behave internationally. Uh, One can predict that by knowing something about what they're like uh, domestically. And that's an important and venerable theme and Tom engages that literature too. Looming a bit more in the background, and I'll make a bit more of a case for it, is the realist uh, view of international relations. It's certainly built in, um, but it, it goes in a few slightly different directions, each of which you can see traces of in Tom's analysis. Um, although I think th- th- there's a sort of uh, divergent set of pathways depending on which species you look at. <laughs> there's a lot in here that is kind of power transition. That is, this is driven by the rise of China, the resurgence of Russia to some degree, but I'll focus on the China part. Uh, and it basically, the idea is great powers like to shape international legal rules in ways that serve their preferences and interests. And as China rises and as other authoritarian states rise, either by becoming more powerful individually or becoming more numerous and predominant quantitatively, uh, they're going to be in a position to, uh, to write those rules and rewrite the rules uh, that we've seen put in place. And this is kind of a replacement thesis. Now, it's a little bit funky from the realist perspective in that it's not really authoritarianism versus liberalism per se. It's epiphenomenal on power change and the authoritarians happen to be getting a bigger share at the moment, but it suggests possible replacement if the trends continue. An alternative strand of realism looks at hegemonic stability. And here the argument is largely the liberal international legal order was the product of American hegemony after the war and then after the Cold War. And as that unravels, uh, the question is can those institutions have enough momentum, have enough internal structure uh, to carry forward the international legal role we've seen. I think Tom's kind of pessimistic on that. Uh, after hegemony is, uh, is something uh, very different. There's a third possibility that doesn't get as much attention in the piece, which is I think though implicit in some of it, which is you could go to more of a balance of power type system. It could be the regional one Tom points to. It could just be back to a very thin type of international law which is, was, by the way, the Chinese take on international law back in the, in the Soviet days. There was Soviet law, there was socialist law, there was bourgeois law, and then there was a thin uh, tissue connecting uh, the two. Um, but back to, in my final bits here to, to the domestic regime type argument uh, that, that Tom makes. Now here, here I think the question is, what is really the hinge between authoritarianism at home and a certain view of international law? Um, is this gonna be the mirror image of the constructivist hope and possibly constructivist error, that is an international set of rules that will hopefully change the world into uh, a system with more uh, autocratic governance at home. Um, or you know, put it a slightly different way, is it, is it um, a question of what will authoritarians do what Democrats did and try to promote uh, a particular agenda? And there, I think that the jury is very much out uh, in the world in general, um, not fully out in Tom's piece, but somewhat out. Uh, and the question is, is, is authoritarian international law really anything much more coherent than post liberal international law? That is, we know what's coming apart, but is there anything uh, that is really coming up in its place? And, and I think Tom's relatively agnostic about this. But let me just say a few things uh, in closing about how one might uh, probe that question. I think there is an element of back to the future that is a lot of what we see from China and other authoritarian regimes really is sovereignty, non-interference, pushing back against liberal interventionism, humanitarian interventionism, et cetera. Absolutely right, China doesn't embrace that so much anymore, but that's partly because it now feels secure at home and because it has interests abroad that sometimes require uh, intervening Uh, and third world solidarity is kind of a thing in the past. Another way of reading it is that it's about making the world safe for autocracy. Uh, So this is really a shield thesis, not a sword thesis. And the really interesting question, which the article gets at some, is how much does your shield turn into a sword? That is, in trying to keep the forces that are trying to change you at bay, how much do you wind up inadvertently or consciously promoting like-minded regimes? The authoritarian mirror image of a world of democracies is good for a democracy. I think how tight that hinge is is something we still don't know. Then there's the Tolstoy problem. All democratic regimes are the same. All authoritarian ones are not. (laughs) They differ hugely. And so how do you get that coherence? I'm a little more skeptical than Andrea is about the Russia-China alignment. I think it's a lot more fragile than that. Uh, And if you look at the examples Tom gives of the content of authoritarian international law, and so far as we know it, um, these are kind of ambiguous themselves. The extremism, separatism, and cyber stuff um, is really, you know, kind of dovetails with this we want to repress at home. Uh, And that may be exported as a model, but it doesn't have the robustness and the system prescriptive role, I think, that liberal uh, views uh, did. Uh, And I think the real question out there is, are we headed toward um, a Cold War with international law elements to it? That is, are we headed toward this ideational conflict, which I think is really going to be a U.S.-China story uh, front and center. China has remained somewhat ambivalent about pushing a Chinese model, although it's moved very much more in that direction under Xi Jinping, and I think that's the thing we have to look at going forward. I've run over time here, so I'll just say one uh, small nit to pick or suggestion to make. I think Tom is right to say that the Shanghai Cooperation Organization has been unduly discounted by people looking at China's behavior. I think you might want to play up the Belt and Road a bit more, because I think that's where a lot of the action that you're looking at will occur.
2: Great. Uh, Can I uh, respond, Mark? I'll just jump in. Um, So this is wonderful comments, and thank you so much. Actually, uh, for reasons of space and maybe coherence, I had to take out a large Belt and Road section. But I do think that is very important, because that is uh, where we are observing very interesting and new forms of international legal cooperation, particularly on the private international law side. We don't really know what these arrangements are going to look like. China is uh, using the famous Deng uh, expression of, you know, crossing the river by feeling the stones in terms of trying to devise legal structures to facilitate the massive uh, multi-trillion dollar investment program that is the Belt and Road. You know, I think China is really a very sophisticated actor and has to be taken uh, very seriously. It's sort of unbelievable, if you think about it, that Hong Kong would have lasted as long as it did. And I'm assuming that Hong Kong is, is kind of over, to be uh, very blunt. Uh, but, you know, to have a kind of liberal pocket in an authoritarian regime shows a remarkable bit of self-confidence. As Jacques knows, I've spent a lot of time in Mongolia, a democracy right on China's border. And China has no problem with that. So I, I agree uh, with some of what you said, that I don't think that they're like that they're affirmatively trying to export their particular model. But I do think that the Belt and Road Initiative is going to lead towards um, uh, sort of, sort of inexorably towards more authoritarian governments uh, wherever it touches, and that may not be a matter of intentional policy. It's just the case that if China has large investments in a country, they're going to want to make sure that those things are secure, and uh, you know I think Exhibit A here are the Rajapaksas in Sri Lanka, who um, you know are uh, the authoritarian bunch of brothers. Um, and, uh, there's a famous story about the port, the Sri Lankan port, which has been delivered to China. I don't think that's what China wants. Uh, in other words, to take over these strategic assets for debt default, but China is certainly does want to have partners that they can trust and rely on. And those tend to be authoritarians because democracies so uh, you often get massive policy change. So, um, I love everything Jacques said about all these various forms of Realist theory, I'm gonna to have to think about them more before trying to respond. But I do think um, China is a realist country. They view the world through a realist lens. And so some form of realism is what's going to, um, what's, what, what they're gonna be um, using in their various interactions. Um, Andrea, thank you very much also for the, uh, the, the, the important comment on how we got here and why the fears are there. And here I just wanna conclude before opening it up to the Q and A on a note of optimism. Um, let's not forget that in December of this year, there were many countries around the world, many of them authoritarian, where there were mass street protests going on. You know, Algeria and Lebanon and Chile and Hong Kong, and you go, the list goes on. And um, this, the, the kinds of issues that got people motivated are bread and butter issues. They're not necessarily about regime change, but they show that there is a, a genuine threat, Um, that authoritarians that don't deliver the goods are, are going to feel like they're, 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 they're at some risk and, um, that there is really genuine demand from my point of view for bottom-up participation. And that is a 21st century thing. That is a norm that you can't put back in the bottle. Um, so, you know, people are more informed, they're more aware, and they're more demanding of their governments. And that means authoritarian regimes are brittle and, um, somewhat threatened and, um, so I think that that's really interesting. Now, all of this inter- is a very interesting interaction with the COVID crisis, on which I'm writing a separate paper. But I think that um, to, from my point of view, there's been a lot of hand-wringing in the newspaper about uh, countries like Hungary, which have used, where leaders have used the COVID crisis to push the last step to become you know, full-on authoritarian. When you look around the world, there aren't very many of those countries that in fact, we might look back and see uh, uh, that many countries that were kind of on the margins have actually maintained their democratic status during the COVID uh, crisis and not been uh, subject to authoritarianism in the short term. So I guess all that's a long way of saying, I actually do remain optimistic, but a huge variable here, as Andrea said, is what is the United States gonna do? what are we going to do? Are we just going to stand by and pretend that the world is not, we're not part of the world in our, we are not a pole. And that uh, obviously is going to have a major impact if we continue to do that.
3: Can I just maybe make a quick comment too, because I agree with you that there should be a, a, a dose of optimism about this, but I think that what your article will also get at and will be key looking forward is the, the kind of technology domain as a new key battlefield. And so I wrote an article in Foreign Affairs on the digital dictators, kind of recognizing the rise of protests, but also authoritarian regimes understand this and have responded and are now co-opting these tools in ways that allow them to actually mitigate risk of protest. And And the way when authoritarian regimes are using these digital repression tools, they're actually becoming more durable in office. And so that space, I think, is going to be one of the critical battlefields. And when we're talking about writing the rules of the game, what is the appropriate use of surveillance? You know, what will become of the free and open Internet? Um, that, that the, the international law component of that, the ability to shape the norms and standards away, around the way that technology is used, including some emerging technologies, um, is going to be key, I think, in shaping that contest and the way that those protests uh, pan out and if they can be a democratizing force or if this is just another domain where authoritarians are going to have the upper hand and this has become another tool for citizen control and prolonging their time in power. So that, I think that that's going to be a key battleground.
4: I'm going to pile on with a bit of optimism here uh, too, Tom. Um, one is that one of the lessons coming out of COVID is, of course, that some of the stellar performers are democracies, small democracies, that handled it without violating civil liberties or democratic norms, uh, South Korea and Taiwan uh, come to mind, and, and Hong Kong, which is deeply flawed, still is, is you know somewhat liberal in handling these things. Um, and I would say that 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 you know the sort of continuing to talk about the protests, Hong Kong, of course, is another example, and that China had been counting on uh, the notion that if you just waited out that first generation that had bought into all this liberal stuff, uh, they would you know come back to the motherland and worry about the economy. And you know at the moment not looking so good, but it's been a remarkably resilient uh, you know now thirty-year battle uh, to keep pushing forward with the, with those values and. Uh, in both Taiwan and Hong Kong and two degrees South Korea, the sense of connection with those who push more liberal values in international law and domestic change has been something of a lifeline. Uh, the hope is the US will return more to the role of supporting those values and the institutions, uh, at least while we have elections, that remains a possibility.
2: Uh, Mark, would you like us to turn to questions?
3: Mark, you're on mute.
1: I think we have time for uh, a number of questions. So uh, let me uh, read the first of them. Um, This one comes from Chuck Mooney. The panel's concept of an authoritarian regime and the approaches Tom has described in the international context seems to fit well much of the behavior of the current government in the United States. Not so.
2: Uh, Well, it's clearly the case that, um, you know, our current president feels a kind of um, affinity and respect for strongmen. Um, And I have to say, when I think about like what would Vladimir Putin's dream policies for the U.S. have been if he was thinking dreaming in 2015, I think we've delivered a lot of those things. Uh, We've muddled, we've abandoned whatever allies, if we had them in the Ukraine. We've delivered Syria. Uh, We've taken on China. And this goes on to Jacques' point that, you know, the China-Russia relationship, it's not a natural alliance by any means. Um, And perhaps Putin is happy that the U.S. is uh, taking on China because he's not in a position to do so. So, look, uh, um, but all that said, uh, you know, our country is still a robust democracy. Any country where you can call your leader a dictator and show up on a, a state legislature, state capital. Uh, armed with guns to protest and call those people dictators is not a dictatorship. So I don't think we're quite there yet, but I do think that our policy matters.
3: I can chime in too. I mean, the the, the key thing. I mean, it, I think it's a useful exercise to to walk through. Is is and again thinking of the evolution of authoritarianism. In my remarks, I commented that there are changes in how authoritarian regimes are falling apart, collapsing. There's also really significant changes in the way that authoritarian regimes are coming to power. And by definition, the converse, the flip side of that coin is the way that democracies are falling apart. And it is increasingly no longer the quick, sudden, decisive break with democracies that we've seen in the past through coups. It's increasingly through democratically elected leaders who are slowly dismantling constraints on the executive. And the playbook for that is clear. I mean, we've seen it in Hungary. Uh, we've seen it in Turkey. We've seen it in Russia, Venezuela. I mean, the, the list goes on where we're in. So the pattern, even despite the different historical and cultural context of all of these different countries, the pattern looks very much the same. Leaders are, you know, going after the media, dismantling the media, dismantling the um, judiciary, the independence of the judiciary, going after civil society, and eventually, kind of changing the rules of the game, gerrymandering, and doing other things such that it makes it hard to get the ruling party out of power. And so that's a. I mean, you can go through and kind of understand those signposts and indicators and assess for yourself kind of where you think the United States falls on some of those. There are some warning signs. People have been talking about this, warning about the risk to American democracy, but at the same time, I mean, the institutions are strong. We have a very um, robust and vibrant democracy, Um, but, but the risk I think when you look at this is to understand that the institutions are also about the people who are in them. And as this president goes about hollowing out the intelligence community, the State Department, other key institutions, um, who will be left to be the constraints on the executive? And so there are risks. You know, I'm I'm not sounding the alarm bells on American democracy, but there are some key indicators that the United States is headed in a not very helpful direction domestically. And then the second point I'll make very quickly is just our role on the international stage. We've been talking about how the United States is not, is abusing allies and partners. So that makes the United States a a less effective, less potent force on the international stage. And we're not showing up in the multilateral organizations. We've just withdrawn funding from the World Health Organization, right, amid this crisis. So instead of leaning in and trying to push back against the headwinds that we're talking about, the United States is abdicating that role and that certainly works in the favor of authoritarians and of this authoritarian international law.
1: Thank you. Uh, We have a question from Mark Pollack at Temple University. Uh, Tom's paper raises the alarm on how authoritarians are shaping international legal norms and institutions in ways that make them systematically less liberal but I'm worried in particular about international courts and tribunals because courts seem to be facing a sort of dual attack from authoritarians on the one hand and populists in democracies on the other. Are the panelists worried that international courts are in particular danger today?
2: So um, I, this is part of a broader book, book project. And so I'm looking at, uh, at all kinds of courts. I do think you have to differentiate a project like the International Criminal Court is certainly, um, I, I'm not sure I'd, I'd, I'd uh, put a call bet on that. Uh, you know, I think it's, uh, it is getting buffeted from multiple sides. Uh, interestingly, so is the WTO, but I, I'm not sure that, would, that will last once the Trump administration um, um, fades from the scene in one year, or five years. Um, the International Court of Justice has never been busier And one of the interesting things is we're now starting to see it being used by authoritarian regimes against each other, uh, which is sort of a new trend in ICJ jurisdiction and something I talk a little bit about in the paper. So um, it may be the case that international courts aren't utilized as much. That's part of my claim about what authoritarian international law is. I just don't think it matters that much. It's not such a central part of international order. Um, I don't see it as maybe as important as others.
4: They are in, you know, international courts are, I think, um, in trouble and, you know, Tom's right to differentiate among types, but they're in trouble in general that we're seeing this sort of sovereigntist pushback, if you will. Um, and so, you know, when they cut close to the bone, especially for for relatively powerful states, we're, we're seeing a greater willingness, I think, to give them the back of the hand. That's not entirely new. The U.S. has a long history that's dealing with the ICJ, but, you know, it goes up and down. And I would say we're, we're kind of in an upswing. You can look at China's approach to the South China Sea arbitration and, and not just rejecting the jurisdiction of the panel, but doing it in particularly uh, caustic terms. Uh, the WTO is obviously in, in, in big trouble now. It may not be a uh, uh, long run, but I think you know it's, it, it, it's, it's a bad moment, but I'd agree it's, it's um, a small symptom of a, of a bigger disease.
1: Okay, thank you. There's a question from Farhan Ahmed of Brack University School of Law. There have always been authoritarians in the world. How's the current set of authoritarians vis-a-vis international law distinct from and or different uh, to the sets of authoritarians of past decades, the 70s, the 80s, or even the early 90s?
2: So I'm sure Andrea has more to say on that than me. But I will say that, um, yes, most regimes uh, for most of history have been authoritarian as defined uh, in the way I do. And um, you know, going back to the Congress of Vienna, we see authoritarian regimes cooperating to create an international order that benefits them. Um, so that's absolutely right. But I do think, uh, and some of the things Andrea was saying indicate what is new about this era. Uh, the density of cooperation across borders, the cyber uh, context that we're in requires perhaps a more affirmative step. And maybe I can turn to you, Andrea.
3: Yeah, I think there's, I mean, it goes back to what I was saying kind of at the beginning of my remarks, too, about A, it, it's because of the general international context that this is sitting in. We're moving from a unipolar moment to this multipolar moment, and the structure of that, of the international system, then is creating dynamics that then make many of the factors that have supported democracy in the post-Cold War era. So the linkages, the leverage, you know, the trade, the aid, all of those types of things that traditionally supported a f- democracy are now working in reverse as strong uh, autocracies, particularly China, um, are rising in the international system. So there's the kind of the context, the, the geopolitical context, I think, is different now than it has been historically. But I, and, but I do think there's another point that's important, um, and it goes back to this question of whether or not authoritarian regimes are promoting authoritarianism. Are they trying to create other countries that are in their image? And I guess as I think about it, it's almost a moot point because even whether or not that's their intended goal, that is the impact of their actions. The outcome in my mind is the same. Um, But I do think that there was a very significant change post-2014. So after Russia's illegal annexation of Crimea and subsequent occupation of eastern Ukraine, we saw authoritarian regimes, especially Russia, but now increasingly China, I think going on the offensive. So for a very long time, authoritarian regimes were content to just push back on democracy promotion efforts. They didn't like it. They saw U.S. efforts to spread democracy as just thinly veiled attempts of the United States to spread influence. So they they have never liked it. But after 2014, I think the tone and the scope and the intensity of the efforts changed dramatically. And in particular, Russia has taken the fight to Western democracies. It doesn't mean that they're trying to set up Putin's trying to set up little mini rushes on his borders. But he is trying to undermine Western democracies, um, and so that is a really significant delta, um, I think, and that's something that we have to think about. And then I guess the third thing I, comes to this technology piece, um, and I do think you know this is a new frontier. It's another area that I'm not sure we understand as well as as we will need to, but. Authoritarian regimes can now, in particular, this is, this is where China plays the far more significant role, can export surveillance equipment and the training and the know-how to use those things in a way that was never possible before. So in, in traditionally, repression was something that was hard for authoritarian regimes to do. You had to have a lot of repressive capability. You had to have money and resources to train officers and boots on the ground. And now what we're seeing is that China and other autocracies, sometimes the West included, can export these technologies and these authoritarian regimes can then import that technology and they're running from the get-go. So there's also the the ability to to build a repressive capacity is also far easier now than it was in the past. So I think there's just a lot of little different deltas that have significantly changed the, the, the competition between democracy and autocracy from these previous eras.
1: Uh, we have a question from uh, Buenos Aires, from Juan Martin Morando uh, the, in the province, provincial government at Buenos Aires. He says, do you think that the fact that people are better informed have greater access to information, could cause them to be less complacent about authoritarianism.
2: Andrea, why don't you take that one?
3: Sure. Um, I think that was the hope. Um, And that was the promise of technology in the internet and social media that people would be able to build new communities. They would be able to hold their governments accountable in new ways. Um, that they would be aware of the way that other people were living in a way that would kind of increase their demand for better, more effective, more accountable government. Um, And I think for a little while, there was a lot of optimism that that would happen. That optimism kind of peaked with the Arab Spring. There was all of this enthusiasm that Internet, social media, Twitter, that it was going to deliver those things for 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 people. Um, and now I think the reality is, looks quite the opposite. And what we're seeing so far is that authoritarian regimes are co-opting those same, talk, same technologies um, in a number of different ways that are actually enabling them to become more durable in office. So in that digital dictators piece, we show that when governments are using these digital repression, so online surveillance, social media monitoring, a whole host of tactics, that they last in office longer than those authoritarian regimes that don't do those things. Are pro- we have some note- early evidence that their risk of um, transitioning to democracy is quite lower, uh, quite a bit lower. Um, and so they're able to use these technologies now to have more legibility over their people. They're able to more surgically identify opponents so that they can use more targeted repression that doesn't elicit backlash of more, the more indiscriminate use of repression. Um, so, so initially, I think to answer your question, the hope was that that was what technology would bring, but authoritarians have quickly adapted and they've learned how to co-opt these things. And again, that's why I'm highlighting, I think this is just gonna be a key battlefield, a key contest and using international loss shaping the norms and the standards for the appropriate use of AI and surveillance. These things are key. And the other reason it's key, I'll just make one more quick point, is because these these technologies are dual use. And that's clearly what we've seen with the COVID crisis, is that these new technologies, technology can be used for contact tracing to help improve public health. Um, authoritarian regimes, the, those regimes that acquire these technologies often do so for perfectly legitimate reasons, for example, to do, to do better um, public safety, counterterrorism, but they are a slippery slope, um, and so there have to be laws, rules, norms in place that put some guardrails on the use of these technologies, otherwise they will be a tool uh, that strengthens the hands of authoritarians
1: i like to give Tom the last word if he'd like it, but otherwise we're at time, so. Uh,
2: why don't I, uh, 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 I won't say anything to this one, um, but I, you know, I do have some minutes. So if people wanna stick around, I can answer a couple of the other questions, which I see in, uh, in, the, in the question list.
1: Okay, uh, everybody comfortable running over a little bit? We can, we can take, why don't we take one or two more questions? Uh, We have a question from our friend Ted Picone at the World Justice Project, uh, who I believe was also cited in uh, one of Tom's footnotes in the article we've been discussing. Uh, Ted says, uh, what role for middle power states like Brazil, South Africa, India, Indonesia, Mexico, etc., which are themselves backsliding on rule of law standards?
2: So this is something I wrote a lot about in my last book on Uh, how constitutional democracies survive and the strategies of design, constitutional design to save them. And I think when you're in the middle, uh, so first of all, a populist regime is often sounds in sovereignism, right? Uh, It is, and populism, you know, it's used as an epithet, but of course it only arises when there is this, you know, sort of void in the system, the possibility of making a claim that the elites are out of touch. And so it's not, not always a bad thing. But international institutions make a very convenient whipping boy for um, for populists, and you see this now with the discussion of the WHO, which is by design a super weak institution. Uh, and the Trump and the Trump uh, campaign may run against the WHO. Um, you see people like Viktor Orbán or Kaczynski in Europe running against the European Union, even as they are accepting massive amounts of money from it. So. Um, as a matter of political discourse, I do think we are going to see that if the particular backsliders are of the form of populists, but they aren't always, right? Sometimes backsliding is caused by uh, other kinds of leaders who, who have different kinds of political messages. Um, my basic view is that we're not going to see those kind of countries be leaders in the development of international law. It requires a certain amount of security and stability of the kind that Jock and Andrea have referred to China now feeling comfortable enough with itself that it can go out and try to project its uh, interests abroad. Um, That's not something you do in the middle of a backsliding transition. I wonder if I might say something, because I see a question about the law of state responsibility, if I can. So one of the uh, students asked about what's the future of the international law of state responsibility in an increasingly authoritarian world? I think it's a great question and worthy of study. Um, and I would be interested in uh, particular Jacques' view on it. So China in the belt, it, it, China's traditional view about state responsibility has been one of, you know, their state has absolute immunity. It's not particularly eager to see um, uh, uh, non-state entities, like let's just say the Institute of Virology in Wuhan, which has come up in some of these American lawsuits against China, uh, be, their behavior be attributed to the state. And uh, so it's rather defensive, traditional, sovereigntist view of state responsibility, um, as well as asserting absolute immunity abroad. Now, the Belt and Road Initiative to me it, um, is going to involve Chinese capital in all kinds of uh, projects with all kinds of actors, some of which are state-owned corporations and such, in all kinds of countries. And sometimes those deals are going to go bad. And so I guess it's really a question for Jacques. Do you see China sort of relaxing its traditional position uh, uh, of absolute immunity and trying to seek a little more um, um, uh, word? Uh, trying to bring in more conduct of non-state actors into the attribution regime of the state responsibility law?
4: It's a good question. Uh, I think what we're gonna see in the short run is that The incipient movement, perhaps in that direction, is going to be overshadowed by a cloud of COVID. (laughs) All those uh, the the suits that are ginning up in the U.S., uh, which you know are, shall we say, creative lawyering, um, they will founder even on U.S. rules of sovereign immunity. But the underlying sort of international law logic of it is uh, to hold China responsible for the failure to disclose, the failure to contain, the the you know the lack of uh, information from the WHO, and the sort of attenuated notions of causation. Um, so I think, you know, that, that's going to lead to some backlash against those who are starting to engage in the kind of rethinking uh, that Tom is talking about. I think that's probably transient in part because it is pretty easy to, to, to hit back against those. Um, one of the issues that comes up in, in, the, in the sovereign community context in particular is that China, as Tom just mentioned, is one of the few countries that still adheres to the absolute theory but they sort of take with one hand and give back with the other. That is, the view has always been that, that Chinese state-owned corporations are distinct from the state and therefore they don't get immunity, um, and so some of the commercial things can be handled uh, in that way. Uh, but, uh, you know, but this is one of those areas where there is something of an economic versus political security disconnect. Uh, China has gotten pretty used to showing up in U.S. courts in conventional cases, uh, to make arguments that are consistent with the restrictive theory, uh, you know they'll argue the commercial activity versus uh, versus government policy uh, distinction in, in very you know they'll hire good U.S. law firms to do that. Um, and you'll and you'll see China signing more and more BITs that are very kind of standard and recognize the obligations to protect foreign investor interests. I think the squaring of the circle is back to the BRI. Um, so the easier way uh, to do this is twofold, without having to change Chinese doctrine too much. One is there's always been a lot of tolerance for you can agree to whatever you want by treaty. Uh, And so sovereign immunity is waivable by treaty uh, to some degree. And And if you've got these bilateral accords with various BRI states that set up the arrangement where those states agree to subject themselves to investor state dispute resolution, there's no problem with that. They've chosen to do it. And you know, China is in the stronger hand there. And the other aspect of it is to, to see where we go with these uh, with the internet, with the uh, commercial court that four BRI cases that China has been setting up in Shanghai, there's a lot of ability to shape that institution procedurally and otherwise in ways that at least hedge against the risks of, of um, rethinking the doctrine the way Tom just uh, mentioned.
1: Okay. Well, thank you very much, everybody. Uh, I think that will be the last word. That's all the time we have.
0: Thank you for listening to Rule of Law Talk. This recorded discussion was produced in partnership with the American Society of International Law. To learn more about the rule of law, what it is, how it works, and how we can strengthen it, visit worldjusticeproject.org.